Hello, this is a podcast from SCC English, the English department of St. Columbus College, Dublin in Ireland. It's our blog at sccenglish.ie. Welcome to the second Macbeth revision podcast from SCC English. This is Julian Gurdon from the English department of St. Columbus College. As I said last week, these podcasts leading up to the Leaving Certificate in early June are sessions of about 15 minutes designed to freshen up your thoughts about the play. You might well disagree with some of these points. I hope you do. That's good. It shows you're really intellectually engaged with the play still. Last week, I discussed what I believe is the crucial moment of the play. Macbeth's soliloquy in Act 1, Scene 7, starting, If it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. This week's podcast follows on logically from that moment, since that speech is interrupted by Lady Macbeth, and the vivid scene that follows shows us the moment when they decide to proceed with the murder of King Duncan. This podcast is titled The Real Lady Macbeth because too often she's seen in a crude and simplistic way. This doesn't seem to happen with Macbeth himself, but if you're going to write on Lady Macbeth or on the couple's relationship, it's important you consider her as a real living human being, not some sort of cartoon villainess. The real Lady Macbeth is much more interesting a complex, fragile, even tragic human being. She appears in nine scenes in the play, though very little in the second half of it. Her impact is disproportionate, considering how little she actually says. This is, of course, a very short tragedy compared to Hamlet. She is truly one of the most memorable characters in literature, and like other famous characters, it's too easy to allow yourself to fall into predictable ways of thinking about her. In your essays, in the exam, you need to write in a fresh, personally involved manner. So here are the scenes that she appears in. First, in Act 1, Scene 5. Significantly, the first time we see her, she's alone. She'll be alone in one way or another, either literally or emotionally, in almost every scene in this play. Shakespeare doesn't give her a best friend, unlike Desdemona in Othello, who has Amelia's support, the only relationship she seems to have is with her husband, and when she dies at the end of the play, she's off stage, and it's reported to us, and Macbeth's reaction seems distinctly underwhelming. Her first words are not her own, but her husband's, in a letter, and indeed throughout the play, despite her apparent individual toughness, she's very much defined by Macbeth. This is not a culture in which women can have any individual importance in society. She might be my dearest partner of greatness, but this partnership is only behind closed doors. He's the one who might become king. When we do see her with other people, she's formal, proper, almost meek. A sloppy way of referring to her is as some kind of man. You need to be more careful and nuanced here. We might have been influenced by already meeting three figures whose gender is ambiguous, the supposedly female witches, who, as Banquo says in Act 1, Scene 3, should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. Lady Macbeth does, of course, famously state that she wishes to be defeminized in some way. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here. Come to my women's breasts, and take my milk for gall. But these words show us just how conscious she is that she is a woman. She might wish to be unsexed. In a soliloquy just before Macbeth arrives, 
Three times she starts sentences with the plea, Come, come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts. Come to my woman's breasts. Come, thick night, and palsy in the dunnest smoke of hell. And the sentence in the middle of these pleas also starts with a pleading imperative, Make thick my blood. If you keep appealing for help to do something, then you obviously need help. This is, in her own terms, a weakness she is careful to disguise from her husband, but it's not hidden from us. Tony Nuttall, in his book Shakespeare the Thinker, points out that, quote, Lady Macbeth knows her own thoughts are dreadful and is, so far, still a moral being. When Macbeth arrives, she sounds as if she's in charge, but his doubts are hinted at in the terse, We will speak further. Her last words seem confident. Only look up clear. To alter favour ever is to fear. Leave all the rest to me. But actually show precisely that she's not at all confident. The second time we see her is in Act 1, Scene 6. With a shocking suddenness, Duncan is actually there at the Macbeth's castle, so quickly that the Macbeths don't have time to organise an efficient killing. In this scene, Lady Macbeth speaks just seven lines of unctuous falsehood. To the king, she's an honoured hostess and fair and noble hostess. Harriet Walter, who played the role in a 1999 production alongside Anthony Scher, says that apart from these phrases, quote, no one comments on her or throws any light on her character. Nobody seems to know her. She has no confidant. Her world is confined to the castle and its servants. But it was hard for my imagination to people the place or fill it with domestic goings-on. A Lady Macbeth busying herself with the housekeeping or taking tea with a circle of friends just did not ring true. Thirdly, we see her in Act 1, Scene 7. And I refer you back now to last week's podcast, which deals with this scene's vital opening soliloquy. As I said then, it seems astonishing that within 30 lines of deciding not to kill Duncan, he's given away with the words, if we should fail. If he's really persuaded within 30 lines, then he's a truly feeble character, hardly worth a tragedy. Instead, it's just a matter of pushing an open door. What he says in that soliloquy is simply overridden by what he truly wants. We all have moments in life when we know we shouldn't do something and then go ahead and do it. And of course, she didn't put the idea in his head in the first place. The key exchange is when Macbeth states, I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. What he means is that if he kills the king, he will no longer be human. But of course, she takes it literally and starts on the famous assault on his manliness. The prompt for Macbeth saying, if we should fail, is her statement that, I have given suck and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done to this. But be careful here. This doesn't mean she'd actually do it. Let's leave aside the distracting question of the Macbeth's children and just point out that this is what's called hyperbole, deliberate exaggeration for effect. It's also called over-egging the pudding. If a baby is breastfeeding, it's not actually smiling in its mother's face. She is indeed, again, hyper-conscious of her femininity. 
When Macbeth says, bring forth men children only, in an admiring way, he's in fact emphasising her as a woman, a mother, not some sort of weird man. In her production, Harriet Walter imagined that she was indeed a mother, and that their childhood died, so to say this was all the more shocking and galvanising for Macbeth. Now, there's no evidence of this, and don't say so in your exam answer, it's just an interesting production idea. By the end of this scene, it seems that Lady Macbeth has got what she wanted. In fact, this is the beginning of the end of their relationship. Fourth comes Act 2, Scene 2, the so-called murder scene, though we don't actually see the murder itself, but rather the reactions of the Macbeths, and one of the most brilliant scenes in all literature, just 73 lines long. It takes place just 64 lines and a few hours after the last scene, in the hectic, headlong time scheme of this story. This is the moment the Macbeths achieve their ambition, and yet there's nothing triumphant in it. Of course, Macbeth is racked with fear, horror and guilt. But Lady Macbeth, too, is riddled with anxiety, dismay and panic, and these keep breaking through her brittle attempts to remain in control. Obsessively, she keeps telling Macbeth not to think about things. Self-contradictory, surely, if you tell someone not to think of something, presumably they think about it. Her responses to Macbeth's nightmarish guilt are increasingly desperate. What do you mean? Who was it that thus cried? infirm of purpose. When Macbeth makes his vivid point, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. Her statement that a little water clears us of this deed is not necessarily confident. It may be nervous dismay posing as confidence. And of course, it is indeed wrong as she finally shows, subconsciously, in the sleepwalking scene. And another important point for you in this scene is when she admits to herself, and to us, her emotional weakness when saying that, had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it. Not admitted it to Macbeth, of course. Here's Harriet Walter again. Quote, she has been called unimaginative. That would account for her boldness, but it also diminishes it, to be unimaginative is to know no fear. I prefer to think that she deliberately narrows her focus, shutting out all speculation about the future in order to act more efficiently. When she begs the spirits, unsex me here, and make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, she is praying for her natural, imaginative susceptibility to be suppressed. For me, the journey, the part of Lady Macbeth, is the fracturing and disintegration of that suppression. Fifth, we come to Act 2, Scene 3, and we only see her in this scene very briefly. When the murdered Duncan is discovered by Macduff, she pretends innocence, living up to her own call to look like the innocent flower but be the serpent under it, but then weakens when Macbeth talks about the horror of seeing the blood, his silver skin, laced with his golden blood, saying, help me hence ho, and faints. The orthodox view is that she faints to distract attention from Macbeth. But consider also that she might really well have fainted. This is a woman, after all, under massive psychological pressure, 
a pressure that will eventually destroy her. Sixth comes Act 3, Scene 1, and she says just one thing. It's about Banquo. If he had been forgotten, it had been as a gap in our great feast, an all thing unbecoming. Before Macbeth goes off to give the murderers their instructions about Banquo and Fleance. She's being marginalised, and of course knows nothing about this new plot. Seventh comes Act 3, Scene 2, and by now everything has changed. When seeing the play for the first time, we think that Lady Macbeth will be a central character throughout. In fact, her influence and function are virtually over already. She pretty well needs to make an appointment to see Macbeth, as she says to a servant on line three, say to the king, I would attend his leisure for a few words, a pathetic plea. This is a strange and rather moving scene, full of tender words and apparently genuine concern. Think of it, perhaps, as the final tenderness of two people whose individual life rafts are about to drift apart forever. She calls him gentle, my lord. He calls her dear wife and dearest Chuck. Maybe the most moving line is her simple, you must leave this. And when she asks him what is to be done, he doesn't tell her. She isn't allowed to speak again by Shakespeare in the scene. We just hear from Macbeth that she marvels at his words. She never has the last word any more. Eighth, Act 3, Scene 4. This should be the pinnacle of all she is aimed for. Instead, the banquet scene marking her husband's ascension to the throne is a disaster, with the evening collapsing into embarrassment and horror. She buzzes around Macbeth in a futile way, unable to get through to him, desperately trying to maintain some public decorum, while also snapping him back to sense. But the old tricks don't work anymore. Oh, proper stuff, she exclaims, and quite unmanned in folly. He hardly hears her, lost in his spiritual terror. She says, you have displaced the mirth, broke the good meeting with most dis admired disorder. But even if she can't admit it or see it, she did this too. In the final, chilling twenty lines, she says little. She's lost him. And then we don't hear of her for another six scenes. She's nothing to do with Macbeth's return to see the witches until the sleepwalking scene, which is the ninth scene. We see her in and the final one, Act 5, Scene 1. This is the most famous and memorable of her appearances. And although she's being observed by the gentlewoman and doctor, she's very much alone. The first time we saw her, she was alone. The last time, she's deeply solitary in her guilt and distress. Harriet Walter says she, quote, wanted the, the audience to feel they were eavesdropping on Lady Macbeth cocooned in her private hell. We remember that a voice a long time ago cried, Macbeth shall sleep no more. But Lady Macbeth turns out to be equally discomfited. She's trapped in repeated actions, in her great perturbation of nature, as the doctor says. The gentlewoman says she has observed her washing her hands for 15 minutes, which is the length of the time I've been talking on this podcast. Just try and do that without stopping in exhaustion. You should know this scene extremely well, and I hardly need to go through the series of disconnected fragments that she utters. Echoing last week's crucial speech, if it were done, she says at the end, what's done cannot be undone. 
quite so. Finally, we might note that the doctor and gentlewoman are rather more sympathetic to her than her own absent husband. Two scenes later, he curtly tells the doctor when he tells him of these thick-coming fancies to, quote, cure her of that. And after the last time we see her. The character we thought was going to be as dominant in the drama as Macbeth has drifted off into her fractured mind. She doesn't die on stage in front of us. When Macbeth hears of her death, he responds as an empty husk of a man. She should have died hereafter. And the speech he then gives us will be the subject of another later podcast. At the end of the play, Malcolm understandably calls her fiend-like. But the truth is that Shakespeare has presented us not with a devil, but with a real human being, flawed, tragic, and finally pathetic.